There's something special about sitting around a table, eating a meal together. Some of my very best memories are around a table with my friends and my family. See, in this very building is where we had our wedding reception, where some of our greatest friends and family came together and, and Rach and I celebrated our new life together. See, I'm one of those crazy people that right around Thanksgiving, I go Black Friday shopping, and invariably about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, we all get hungry, and we go to IHOP, McDonald's, sit around with our group of our best friends, laughing, joking, talking about what we bought. See, I grew up in my Nana's house, and my Nana was the most awesome cook, baker you would ever find. And one of our favorite things to do together was to make pasta, spaghetti, to be precise. And my Nana shared with me, at a very young age, we always knew exactly when the spaghetti was perfect. She would say, Michael, come over here, let me show you. And she would, with a wooden spoon, take out one of the pieces of spaghetti. And she said, you know how you know when it's done is you take it out and you throw it against the refrigerator door. If it sticks, it's done. It's ready to eat. And so as a young boy, I loved when we got to be in the kitchen together. And so I would go and take it, and I would get so excited when it would stick to that refrigerator door. And then we'd come together and eat the meal that we worked so hard on. There's something really special about sharing a meal together. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus sharing meal with so many people. If you go into the book of Luke, there's 10 times where Jesus is invited to eat with someone. See, early on in that book, we see he meets Levi, the tax collector. And Levi invites Jesus over and they have a banquet together. And all the religious leaders are up in arms. They even say, why are you eating with such scum? And then it continues on where Jesus is having another meal. And while he's there, there's this, what they call a sinful woman that comes and pours perfume all over his feet. It actually says that she washes his feet with her hair with her tears. And then finally, we see that famous story where Jesus, after he's done preaching, he wants to feed the assembled crowd. When he has five loaves, two fish, and in an amazing story, it multiplies, and he's able to feed the 5,000. See, there's something about a meal. Since the early days of civilization, meals have been a key way to connect with one another, to have relationships with one another. It's no surprise that Jesus spent his last hours around a meal with some of his best friends, his favorite people in the world. See, in Scripture, we call that the Last Supper. It's found in Matthew 26. See, these were his friends that he had spent basically the last three years together and they're coming together one last time because Jesus knows what's about to happen. And when you go into that passage in Matthew, shortly after they start eating, Jesus drops a bomb. He says, shortly, one of you will betray me. And they start to ask, Jesus, will it be me? Will it be me? And Judas speaks up and says, Lord, will it be me? And Jesus identifies Judas as the man who would soon betray him. And so they sit down and they eat together. And can I tell you, that shows the amazing love and grace of Jesus that even in the man that he knew was about to betray him, he still, still shared a meal with him. He still 
spent time with him, to be present with the man who would very soon hand him over to be killed. You see, think about the last person you would ever want to share a meal with. Your boss, your ex, your mother-in-law. Just kidding, Letty. Think about that person. That's who Judas was to Jesus in that moment. See, a thousand years earlier, David prophesied that this would happen. All the way back in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, he says, Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food, has turned against me. Jesus knows what's going to happen next. And so he excuses himself and he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, that word is translated olive press. You see, their olives from the neighborhood were crushed for their oil. It's very fitting that it's called that because that was the same spot that the Son of God would be crushed. And see, I think he chose that place because Judas would have known where it was. It was familiar to him. You see, Jesus wasn't going off somewhere to hide, but he went willingly to begin the process to give up his life for you and for me. See, and he knew both the physical and the spiritual horror waiting for him at the cross. Jesus would stand in the place of guilty sinners. He would take on the punishment, the sacrifice for you and for me. He who knew no sin would be sin for us. And as the story unfolds, we see here that Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the council. He goes to trial before Pilate. And the accusations against him are read. And as it goes on multiple times, it says that he was silent. And Jesus at this point, he could have called a whole host of witnesses. He could have gone back and talked about the people that he healed. The people that he was able to make walk. The blind that he showed how they were able to see now. But instead it continues on that Jesus remained silent. See, he could have defended himself. He could have spoken up against all the false testimony that was being brought against him. But it says he didn't say a word. He didn't want to be set free. Rather, he wanted to endure the punishment that was set for us. See, and the question was from Pilate, do you want to release Barabbas or release Jesus? See, Barabbas, he was a criminal, a murderer. He would be what we would look at as a modern-day terrorist. And instead, the crowd calls out for the release of the criminal, the one who deserved the punishment. And their chance of crucify him overtake the crowd. See, in just a few short days, when Jesus came in, back on Sunday, he was worshipped. They praised him. And by five days later, on this Friday, they were screaming out for him to be crucified. I imagine Barabbas in a prison cell with a small window, not too far from where the crowd has gathered. And in that tiny space, he can't hear what Pilate's saying when he's saying, what should I do? But Barabbas can hear the crowd saying, crucify him. And then he continues on when Pilate's saying, who do you want to release, but Barabbas can't hear that. All he hears later on is the crowd chanting, Barabbas. So imagine his surprise when the guards walk in and he thinks that it's his time 
to be led to his certain death. But instead, he hears the guards say, you're free. You found freedom. If anyone knew what it meant for Jesus to die in his place, it was Barabbas. He was a terrorist. He was a murderer. Yet still he was set free while Jesus was crucified. And let's go a step further. See, I wonder if the cross that Jesus would eventually be hung on was the cross that was originally set for Barabbas. And so we see Pilate, he hands over Jesus to the Roman soldiers and they beat him with a whip made out of leather. And it says on the end of it, it has sharp pieces of bone or metal at the end and it would have reduced Jesus' back to raw flesh. See, it wasn't unusual for a criminal to die from a scourging before he was even crucified. See, what happened a lot of times, the blows would lessen as the criminal confessed to his crimes. But as we've seen, Jesus remained silent. So they would have continued to beat him at maximum strength, not slowing down. And so they strip him down. They put a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns. They give him a scepter that's really just a reed stick. They're making fun of him. They say, you're the king, so we're going to dress you up. We're going to treat you like the king. And they start bowing down. They start mocking him. Scripture says they start spitting on him. And it's remarkable that the immediate judgment of God doesn't start raining down from heaven. That a legion of angels aren't sent to come to his defense. See, as the father looked down at his son, it's such a vivid picture of God's mercy on all of us. See, and they lead him, it says, a way to be crucified. And crucifixion was reserved at this time for the worst criminals, the lowest classes of citizens. And usually crosses would be fixed in a visible place just outside the city so everybody could see. See, I imagine that Jesus had passed this spot many, many times. And that spot that he had seen many times was now reserved for him. See, crucifixion was designed to be the most gruesome, the most humiliating way as possible. See, it probably wasn't like we often see in the pictures. See, he was kept naked to die with as little dignity as possible. It goes on to say that they took six-inch iron spikes and shoved it through his wrists, hammered them in, and then they did the same to his feet. It was a gruesome death, and as, he, as he's lifted up, he looks down at the Jewish leaders. He looks down at the crowd, the supporters, the soldiers, and he says something so unbelievable that's captured here in Scripture. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. See, he recognized in that moment that they didn't understand the full extent of what they were a part of. Jesus here, he was practicing what he had so long preached. Because in Matthew 5, he says, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. See, it's one thing to say it. It's something entirely different to live it. And Jesus is placed in the middle between two criminals and they begin to taunt him. They say, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. 
and us too while you're at it. But one of the men, as the time passes by, he changes heart. He turns to Jesus with as much strength as he can muster and he says, Jesus, remember me. See, and we're not entirely sure why that is. Maybe he had heard the rumors that had been spreading through the town that this could really be the Messiah. Possibly he had been in a crowd when Jesus was teaching in the past. Or maybe, just maybe, he watched how Jesus was facing his own death. He saw how he was handling his hardships. You see, when we go through trials, it allows our testimony to shine. See, there on the cross, Jesus gave him the most important gift. It goes on to say, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. See, he was a thief. He had lived a life full of sin, but even then he was going to heaven. Can I tell you today, Jesus wants to offer the same forgiveness and salvation to you. See, I believe that salvation is a process. I believe that salvation is ongoing. I've often told people, see, I was saved when I was seven years old. See, I started a relationship with Jesus at that young age. It's that whole idea of Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. See, it's a done deal. You were saved in the moment your sins were forgiven. But can I tell you today, I don't believe that that's all there is to it. Because in 2 Corinthians 4.16 it says, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Are being renewed. That's present tense. See, I was saved, but I'm also being saved. I'm being renewed. There are still things in my life that Jesus is working on with me. But then it goes a step further. Not only was I saved, not only am I being saved right now, but I look forward to the time at the end of my life when I will be saved. Look and, listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1.5. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. To be revealed. Future tense. God's power is the opportunity where we find our security. See, salvation is a process, past, present, and future. When Jesus was on the cross and he's looking down, he couldn't help but notice a ton of people who hated him, who were jeering at him, who couldn't wait for him to breathe his last breath. But also, as he's looking down there, he saw the people who loved him, the most important of which was his mother, Mary. And he looks down on her with love, and I wonder what went through Mary's mind as she stood there. I wonder what she thought because she had been through a lot with Jesus. She had become pregnant as a young virgin girl. She had given birth to Jesus. And all throughout his life, I'm sure she worried about where he was traveling and the people who were angry with him and protection. But I'm sure she started to wonder if this was a part of the plan. Or something had happened to make the whole plan go awry. 
But she was there when he was born, and she was determined to be there at the end. And as Jesus looks down, he sees his mom and John, the only disciple that had the guts to show up. And he addresses the two of them. He says, dear woman, here is your son. And turns to John and says, here is your mother. And scripture says, from then on, the disciple took her into his home. And apparently Jesus' dad, Joseph, had died by this time. Mary had never gotten remarried. And as the oldest son, Jesus would have been responsible for the household. But did you notice what happened there? Jesus didn't merely put John in charge of Mary. He gave Mary a new identity as John's mother. See, that's what Jesus does all the time. He makes us a family. I don't know what you've dealt with in your family, but Jesus invites you to be a part of his family. All the stuff you've gone through, all the dysfunction, Jesus says, that doesn't matter. I'm inviting you in. See, you may have been abandoned on the doorstep of life, but Jesus wants to adopt you into his family. See, so far today, we've looked at three steps of following Jesus. Forgiveness, salvation, and relationship. But Jesus continues on by saying, My God, why have you forsaken me? And see, for me, reading that, that's the hardest to comprehend. Everything else he's said thus far, I get it. Father, forgive them. That's his heart. Today you will be with me in paradise, even taking us to sinners. Take care of my mother. But then when he gets to this, after making sure that his own earthly mother wouldn't be abandoned, he starts to feel the abandonment from his heavenly father. See, he says a word, Eli, Eli, Lamech Sebaktani. See, that's a phrase that's unfamiliar to us, but Jesus was quoting the opening line of Psalm 22, a psalm that prophetically expresses much of what Jesus would endure on the cross. See, that was written over a thousand years earlier, but it talks about what one day would happen to the Messiah. See, in Psalm 22, it says that his strength has dried up. The enemies surround me. They throw dice for my clothes. They have pierced my hands and feet. They have left me for dead. See, I don't think the greatest pain that Jesus endured wasn't the whips, wasn't the nails, but it was the abandonment that he found from his heavenly Father. See, Jesus submitted to a death that he didn't deserve for you and for me. See, he went through the separation from his Father so we would never have to. That same Jesus that was forsaken says to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. See, Jesus had known great physical and spiritual pain throughout his life. He had suffered a lot. Yet he had never known separation from his father. But in this moment, a holy transaction takes place. God the Father regarded his son as if he were a sinner. See, the Apostle Paul later writes in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of his father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of his father's wrath upon him as a substitute for all of sinful humanity. See, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I can imagine God saying, because my son, you have chosen to stand in the place of guilty sinners. You who have never known no sin, you've been made the sacrifice to begin to become the sin, to receive my wrath. You're doing this because of my great love and because of your great love for all of humanity. It was customary to give those who were about to be crucified a pain-numbing, mind-numbing drink to lessen the awareness of the agony that was awaiting them. But Jesus refused all that. He chose to face the spiritual and the physical terror with his sights and his emotions fully aware. But as the afternoon goes on, he later accepted a taste of greatly diluted wine to wet his parched lips, his dry throat, because he wanted to say one final announcement to the world with a clear, loud voice. See, most victims of crucifixion spent their last hours in unconsciousness before death. But Jesus was not like this. Though Jesus was tremendously tortured, tremendously weakened, he was conscious and able to speak until the time of his death. And he had one more thing to say. To telestai. It is finished. You see, Jesus cried with a cry of victory on his lips. He died knowing he had one more thing to say. And this wasn't the moan of the defeated. This wasn't the sigh of resignation. It was the triumphant resignation that what he had come into this world all those years ago, he had fully accomplished. And in scripture it says, then he bowed his head, released his spirit. But see, he didn't bow his head in defeat. No, he bowed it in peace. His life wasn't taken away from him reluctantly. He gave it up voluntarily. He intentionally turned his spirit over to God. He let go of everything, becoming completely poor so we could be completely rich in him. See, he could have come down from there, but you need to know tonight that it wasn't the nails that held him to that cross. It was his love for you and for me. And after his death, we see a secret follower of Jesus, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He asks for Jesus' body. He takes him down off the cross. And Joseph puts him in his own tomb, his own final resting place. And scripture goes on to say that they rolled a stone in front. They put a seal along the front of the tomb. And they put guards posted outside. See, the, why a stone? Because it would take so many people to move. And they didn't want Jesus' body to be messed with or stolen. They put a seal. A seal is a rope with wax on both sides. It's kind of like modern-day police tape, that nobody could cross that line. It showed authority. 
And then they had guards set up outside of it. And a typical Roman guard post would be about four men fully armed so no one could come and take Jesus' body. See, but that's not the end of the story. See, the greatest miracle in history was about to happen in just a couple days. The greatest story ever retold was about to happen on Sunday. It was about to go silent for a day or two, but Sunday was coming. See, Jesus, he was rejected. Jesus was rejected, and there were people that chose Barabbas. They chose the murderer over the Messiah. And there's so many times in life that many of us, many of us have chosen other things over Jesus. And see, on a weekend like this, it's a great reminder that Jesus is calling us back. He's saying, choose me over everything else that you're going through right now. I know it's rocky. I know it's uncertain. I know you're trying to figure it out on your own. And Jesus is saying, trust me. Rest in me. Choose me. Don't reject me any longer. I want a relationship with you. I want to lead you. I want to guide you. See, no matter your past, God is calling you into your future. And see, that's my prayer for you today. As we conclude tonight and we look in anticipation for Sunday morning, I want to pray that God would speak to you, that you would follow the direction that he has for you, that if you've turned away from him in the past, he's given you an invitation to come back and follow him. Will you pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for sending your son all those years ago, for sending your son to the cross to take the punishment for all of my sins, to send your son who did no wrong to take the punishment for all the things that my life has been full of. And God, this evening we confess to you. We thank you. We thank you for what you've done and what you're continuing to do in and through each of us and in and through our nation and throughout the world. God, we trust you. We know that nothing takes you by surprise and we rest in the fact that you have a plan and a purpose and a future for each and every one of us. We love you, Jesus, and in Jesus' name, amen. See, we're coming back on Sunday morning, and we invite you to join us again at 10 a.m. this coming Sunday morning because the story isn't done. It's just getting started. Thank you for joining us tonight. I love you, Riverside, and I can't wait to be back on Sunday morning. Have the best night. God bless you.